Good evening. The um, chili cook-off is this Sunday at 6 p.m. in here. We still need quite a few uh, chilies and soups, so if you would email me if you're interested in bringing something, chris at graceofan.org. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. I dare not pick up in Galatians where Dr. Young left off. Although I do think it is a great study. Uh, Dr. Young's out this week and next week. He's in Central Europe with some exciting ministry opportunities that I'm sure he'd be glad to tell everyone about uh, when he gets back. In fact, I think you ought to pressure him to tell everyone about it uh, from up here. For those that don't know, my name's Chris Luke. My responsibilities here include 20s and 30s ministry as well as men's ministry. Um, Dr. Young obviously asked me to teach tonight, and he also asked Jonathan Todd to teach next week. Now, Jonathan and I didn't know that, that each other were teaching until yesterday. He was in my office. We were actually talking about something else, um, but we did discover that I was teaching and, and he was teaching next week. And as we were discussing what we would be teaching, we discovered that God has providentially put the two sermons together to complement one another. This week I'm teaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, and next week Jonathan's teaching from 1 Peter chapter 2. And we really didn't draw that up, uh, God did. So obviously the Lord has something to say to all of us over the next couple weeks from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to focus on verse 22. Follow as I read, this is the Word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I really just want to draw your attention to the first part of that verse. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What Peter is saying here is that there is a purifying effect to our obedience. Your obedience to the truth purifies your soul. We need to unpack that a bit in order to better understand. The first thing we need to do is get it in its right context. So uh, look at the beginning of chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's a helpful way to think about the way that salvation gets distributed from God uh, to His people, Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies the salvation that Jesus accomplished. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, the Holy Spirit applies to us. So this passage in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, is about salvation getting applied to the Christian. It's about coming to new life. And Peter says that our salvation is all according to the Father's great mercy. He has caused us 
to be born again. God is the cause of our salvation. Jesus accomplished it. The Holy Spirit applies it. And we receive it. All according to God the Father's great mercy. All right, continuing to get our context, look at verse 10 in chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets came before the time of Christ and spoke of this great salvation, and we would find out elsewhere that they didn't really know what they were speaking about. They were just being used by God to speak these glorious things. Um, It says, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, about the grace that was to be ours. Or you could say, the grace that we were to be given uh, from God. Grace that has now come in Christ, grace that we have now received, grace that has now been applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God who has been deposited in us, who has come to give us new life. The point that I'm trying to make is, Peter is saying, God is the giver of grace. We are the blessed recipients of His grace. Peter starts where we should start. Salvation in Christ is all about God's grace, His unmerited, unearned favor. And that is really the main theme running through verses 3 uh, through 12 in 1 Peter 1. There's nothing that any man can do to earn God's favor for salvation. We are at His mercy. And praise God, according to His great mercy, He has poured out His Spirit upon us. Now look at verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, what's the first word in in verse 13? Therefore, which is connecting what he said before to what he's about to say, right? Essentially, what Peter's saying here is, in light of what I just told you about salvation being a work of God's grace, live as obedient children. In light of the fact that He who saved you by His grace is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So in Peter's mind, obedient living and God's grace do not compete against one another. They complement one another. Obedient living flows from the stream of God's grace given to the believer. Now, of course, there will always be those who think that They can earn God's favor by obedient living, and they have another thing coming. We don't believe that, not for a second. We believe what the Bible teaches, salvation is all grace, and the inevitable response of God's grace for the believer is obedient living. Or to say it differently, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive In Christ, God caused us to come to spiritual life, and that spiritual life was given us in order to be lived. Well, 
question arises, well, how do we live it as obedient children? Be holy as your God is holy. Peter's not talking anything about earning salvation. He's talking about living out our salvation that we received by grace. One way to think about it is that your obedience is part of the grace package. Grace is not just a concept. Grace is a transforming reality. I I get the picture in my mind of uh, God's grace coming into my life, grace like a freight train. It's like it it met me in this head-on collision at at this one point in my life, but uh, God's grace took me with it. And there's a trajectory of God's grace, which is, of course, towards Christ and uh, obedient living on the way. So before you became a Christian, you could not properly obey God. Your will was bound in sin, um, but according to His great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. God has transformed us from the inside out. And the one thing, or one thing that this means is that we can now obey Him. Perhaps the clearest place where we see this dynamic in Scripture is in Ezekiel chapter 36. If I have a life verse or verses, it would be here. And I probably reference this passage ten times a year, but I don't make any apologies for that. It's a, it's a passage we all need to know. Go ahead and turn there. Ezekiel 36, uh, 24 to 27. This passage is often called the John 3 of the Old Testament. Uh, It's thought by some that this was the passage that Jesus had in mind when He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So, uh, as you're getting there, brief context, God created the nation of Israel to be His people and to represent Him to the surrounding nations. However, Israel was not very good at their job. And so they continued to profane God's name in their sin-ridden, idol-worshiping lives. So through the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks to His people Israel, and He promises here to take matters into His own hands. He's going to vindicate His great name, it says in the verses prior to where we'll read tonight. He promises here to do for His people and with His people what they could not do for and with themselves. Ezekiel 36, uh, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, first thing I want you to see here is uh, whose work this is. This is God's work. Notice, Notice how many times in this passage God says, I. I will take you from the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you. From your idols, I will cleanse you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put, God, I will put my spirit within you. 
So this is all about grace, much like what we saw in the beginning of 1 Peter. This is about God doing for His people what we could not do for ourselves. And this just isn't just for the people of Israel. This promise is fulfilled in every Christian. This is about true heart conversion, about being born again by the Spirit of God. This is about God transforming us from the inside out. And every true Christian has been born again by the Spirit of God. I want you to notice uh, what God says the effect of the Spirit coming into our life is in verse 27. Verse 27, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's grace is not a mere concept. God's grace involves the Spirit coming into our hearts and transforming us from the inside out. And what is the effect? He tells us we walk in His ways. We do what we once could not do. We obey. All right. Long way of getting there, but there's our context. So back to 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls, Peter says, by your obedience to the truth. We're only able to obey because of God's grace at work within us. And, Peter says, our obedience has a purifying power in our souls. Or to say it another way, our obedience is a grace in our lives. It's not the totality of grace in our lives, but it is a significant grace. Actually, that should be more specific because the text is more specific. Our obedience to the truth is a grace from God in our lives. For some of us, I think talk about obedience makes us uncomfortable because we think if we talk about it too much or if we try too hard at it, then we're being legalistic. And I would submit to you that that's just not true. Legalism is adding something to Christ for salvation. For example, as Dr. Young will bring up again and again in Galatians, there are those who believe that you must be baptized in conjunction with believing in Jesus in order to be saved. So they say something like Jesus plus baptism equals salvation. That is legalism. Legalism, um, explained another way, legalism is the belief that your efforts earn you God's favor in some way for salvation. Indeed, the legalist demands good things from God on account of his good works, much like the uh, elder brother in the parable we've been studying on Sundays. Legalism is a great evil. And I have no doubt that I, as well as, as all of us, um, have legalistic tendencies at times, thinking that we can earn God's favor in some way or another. But what I want to say is that obedience to the truth is not legalism. Working hard to obey God according to His Word is not legalism. Now, Obedience to the truth in the way that Peter prescribes in 1 Peter chapter 1 is simply not possible unless God intervenes in your life and gives you His Holy Spirit. But for the Christian, all of whom have been born again by the Spirit of God, obedience to the truth is a significant part of God's grace at work in our lives. Obedience to the truth is how we respond 
to God. It's how we give our lives back to God. It's like we say to God, you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You have given us a heart to respond. You have given your spirit so that I could even understand your truth and and could actually follow you. We believe you, Lord. We trust you. We love you. We are going to follow you. Just tell us what to do. And, And he does. He has told us what to do in his word. So, whatever the Word prescribes, that's what we do. And God has ordained that our obedience to the truth is a grace in our lives that purifies our souls. So, um, why is this helpful to know? Here's one reason. Does anybody ever feel like uh, your desires and motivations are like a badly tangled fishing reel? I do. We have competing sets of desires at war within us. We have desires of our sinful nature. We have desires of the Holy Spirit. We know what God has called us to do, and in our finer moments, we actually want to do them. But we also want to sin. Does anybody know that feeling? I want to follow God. I want to sin. I want to be faithful to my wife. I also have desires at work within me that if I were to follow them would lead me not to be faithful to my wife. You want to serve God with your finances. You also want to serve yourself. Welcome to the Christian life. So the question that we have to always ask ourselves is this, self Who are you going to follow? If we could only get it through our heads that we in and of ourselves are not ultimately trustworthy. Only God's truth, only God's Word is ultimately trustworthy. Sure, some of our desires are good and some of them are straight out of the pit of hell. Yet, I think our default mode is to follow our heart. Our default mode is to trust ourselves We need to lose trust in ourselves and put our trust in God and in His truth. Obey the truth. We are not the truth. The truth is outside of us. The truth can be measured. God's Word is the truth. The truth is objective. Our feelings are subjective. The truth never changes. Our feelings and intuitions, they they change with each situation. The truth is true. Our feelings and intuitions, though they are very real, they are not always true. As I was preparing this message, I picked up a a quote from the great theologian Tiffany Luke, and uh, that's my wife. I said to her what I just said to you, and and you'll see in a minute where I got this. Um, I said, the truth is true. Our feelings and intuitions, though they are real, they're not always true. And she replied, and I think it was wonderful, she said, and it's because our feelings are real, if we don't check ourselves, we just assume that they're true. Because our feelings are so real, if we don't check ourselves, we just assume 
that they're true. What we are after is obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth purifies our souls. Obedience to our feelings and intuitions often leaves the fishing reel in even more of a mess. Um, If you haven't read this book, I recommend it to you. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Um, I think it's good on on many levels, including um, insights into the homosexual community in our culture and how to engage them evangelistically, Uh, insights on sin and repentance, insights on obedience to the truth, and the place of our desires and motivations, um, the inner workings of our soul in that obedience to the truth, and, and, and more things. A little bit about Rosaria. Rosaria was a radical, feminist, postmodern lesbian. I'm not sure which ones she would, which order she would put that in, but um, she was a tenured uh, professor at Syracuse University teaching in one of the first and strongest women's studies programs in the nation. Her uh, her primary field was postmodernism, and her specialty field was queer theory. That's actually the correct name, um, queer theory. Basically to say, all of the shifts that you see in our culture today, she was one of the influential leaders making it all go. And she had been openly homosexual for at least a few years when she met Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. And during that time, she was working on a major research project which required that she read the Bible. Um, her, her research project was going to include proving the Bible's inconsistencies and showing that uh, why taking the Bible as an authority for one's life is destructive. But because she was a top-notch scholar, and she was in her field, she wanted her research to have integrity, so she knew she had to get to the primary source, and she had to read the Bible. So she read it over and over and over and over. At the beginning, in an attempt to mock it and pick it apart and use it for her argument, but over a couple-year period, her reading of the Bible, coupled with her relationship with Pastor Ken and Floyd, simply changed her. Ultimately, uh, God changed her heart. I want to read you a couple things surrounding her conversion where she gives us some great insights into the relationship of, of obedience to the truth and our desires. She says this, That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that He would change my heart. And if He was real, and if I was His, I prayed that He would give me the strength of mind to follow Him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually His life, that He would take it back and make it what He wanted it to be. 
I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. Two incommensurable worldviews clashed together. The reality of my lived experience and the truth of the Word of God. This is where I got the real and true distinction. She says, in continental philosophy, we talk about the difference between the true and the real. Had my life become real, but not true? The Bible told me to repent, but I did not feel like repenting. Do you have to feel like repenting in order to repent? Was I a sinner, or was I, in my drag queen's friend's words, sick? How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like a sin? Man, that's good. Uh, i got to read you a couple more things from the next page. When Christ gave me the strength to follow Him, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian. I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey Him. She says, obedience comes before understanding. And, and later, I started to obey God in my heart one step at a time. I broke up with my girlfriend. My heart really wasn't in the breakup, but I hoped that God would regard my obedience even in its double-mindedness. Later, I learned that we must obey in faith before we feel better or different. At this time, though, obeying in faith, to me, felt like throwing myself off a cliff. <laughs> you really should read the book. Um, man, is that good. So as she began to follow God, she felt completely like a lesbian. It felt like life, plain and simple, she says. But, but she had been given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. She had been given a heart to respond and, and the Holy Spirit to obey the truth. Her feelings were real, but they were not true. She obeyed the truth and she discovered that the Lord does not change our feelings until we obey Him. Our obedience to the truth purifies our souls. So did her, her feelings change overnight? No. Did her feelings change over time, they, big time? Does she still struggle with certain feelings from her past? Probably so. But she's married now, a mother of four, and has given her life uh, to serving the Lord. She's given her life to obedience to the truth. And her soul has been being purified. So application number one, I think you should read Rosaria's book. Application number two, related to the ongoing conversation in our culture about homosexuality, I think this real versus true distinction is actually very helpful in conversations that you're in, um, be it with a homosexual or with, um, you know, just other people that want to argue or whatever it may be. Homosexuals have very real desires, and we should recognize that. However, those desires are not true. We can compassionately, as Christians, identify with people that have uh, very real, sinful desires because we have them too, right? Now, we may not have the same ones, but we do have very real, very sinful desires. Sometimes they feel like life, plain and simple. 
That said, we affirm that God's Word is truth and believe that no matter how we feel, no matter our motivations, no matter our desires, the truth is to be our guide. We also understand that the Lord often does not change our feelings until we obey Him. Application number three. In, in saying all this, I don't want to give the wrong message. God is concerned with our desires and motivations. Okay? We, um, he is concerned that they be transformed. But when yours are out of whack, and I have a feeling that for all of us, they are at times. Uh, when yours are out of whack, do not give in to your sin and do not give over to despair. Because I think those are the two ways that we typically go. We give into our sin. I just can't get away from it. It's just, it's overwhelming me. Or I must not be a Christian. I, I just, true Christians don't struggle like this. We, they just don't think this way. Don't give into your sin. Don't give over to despair. Do what God has told you to do in His Word. And as you do, your motivations and your desires will be purified. This really gives me an enormous amount of freedom um, because it brings some of the most basic biblical commands into new light. For example, regarding sexual sin and temptation, the Bible says to flee sexual immorality. Just simply stop it. Run. Put off the desires of the flesh. And if you are alive in the Holy Spirit of God, when you act according to this instruction... When you turn your head to flee, when you X out of that web page, when you make decisions not to watch those shows anymore or those movies, in the little things, in the day-to-day -day fleeing, in the putting off the desires of the flesh and focusing our attention to the God of our salvation, there's a purification happening in your soul. So flee, run, obey God. And as you do, you will be purified. Another one that you're going to want me to get through pretty quick. Um, if you're married, it is actually a biblical command to come together regularly with your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> the, the greatest way to fight sexual temptation, if you're married is to regularly be together with your spouse. So, number one, if you're the one that's always shooting the other one down, you need to know and understand that 1 Corinthians 7 would tell you that you are opening the door for Satan. And number two, I do understand that the reasons for not coming together are plenty. I do understand that some are very legitimate, and the text even provides uh, room for that. Some are not so legitimate, and that's really what I want to speak to. I don't want to go into detail, and don't worry, I am about to move on to the next point. But um, in all seriousness, in a culture as sexually perverse as ours, we need to talk about this. I simply want to speak to those who reject your spouse because you don't feel like it, or because you don't feel the same way that you used to. Obey the truth. Come together often. Your feelings will follow suit. How about this? You feel like you want to leave your spouse. Your feelings are not true. They are real, 
They are very real, but they are not true. Obey the truth and your soul will be purified. Or maybe you have friends and family members that that want to leave their spouse and they come to you to talk to you about it. Tell them your feelings are not true. They are real, but they are not true. Obey the truth. Fight for your marriage. People say, I don't love them anymore. What they mean is, I don't feel the same way anymore. But biblical love is an action. Biblical love is sacrifice. Biblical love is pictured in Jesus' death on the cross, which did not feel very good. So regardless of how you feel, you can sacrifice for your spouse. Lay down your life, and your feelings will follow suit. Or how about um, when we communicate with our kids? Whether it be when they're young, in discipline, in dating, in marriage, in major life transitions, whatever it may be, all of us uh, tend to follow our heart. And we also live in a culture that has been flooding them with that message their whole life. Follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. But the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful. Follow what is true and your soul will be purified. How about our finances? Finances are in a mess. We want to give to the Lord. We just can't imagine how we will ever be able to do so. Well, start giving today. And, and start giving way more than what makes sense in, in your checkbook. Your feelings will fall in line, and I would uh, expect so would your finances. Maybe you are giving, but you recognize an unhealthy place in your soul in regard to your finances, like the pause of your heart just, just won't let go. I would submit to you that the best way to get the pause of your heart off of your finances is to start giving above and beyond what is normal and what is comfortable for you. Give, and your soul will be purified. How about spiritual disciplines? You know, growing in the Christian life requires that you build habits that on the front end, you don't necessarily want to do. You know you need to study and understand the Bible more than you do. You know you need to spend more time in prayer than you do. Some may think, well, I know I need to serve more than I do. But if you're honest, you don't always want to do these things. I don't always want to wake up and study the Bible. That's okay. Do them anyway your feelings will fall in line. Finally, perhaps the most important truth that you can obey is this. Believe the gospel. When you work hard at obedience, you will inevitably slip back into a works-based mindset. When you fail, you will be tempted to believe that God does not love you as much in that failure as He does in your faithfulness to His commands. It's simply false. God could never love you more than He already loves you in Christ. He could never love you less than He already loves you in Christ. Listen to these words from before the throne of God above. I won't sing. You would be highly offended. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Believe the gospel and your soul will be purified. Let's pray. Our Father, how great is your grace, Lord. Um, we are wretched deep within, yet it is so freeing, uh, A, to know that this great salvation isn't based on anything that we've done. We are simply the blessed recipients of your favor. And Lord, it's also freeing to know that we can follow you in all of our uh, twisted desires and motivations. And, and even that our uh, simple obedience to the truth will purify our souls. Give us strength, Lord. Give us grace in, in the crossfire. Give us the ability uh, to choose truth. Our feelings, our motivations are overwhelming. They're very real. The culture tells us to follow them. Uh, give us your grace, Lord. We need it. And, and Lord Jesus, in our efforts uh, to live a life, uh, that you would be pleased with, we will inevitably fall back into uh, either despair or giving into our sin. And so I pray that the gospel uh, would resound. I pray that it would be loud and clear in our hearts and minds. I do pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.